Hey everyone, and welcome to a new and long-awaited episode of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author Anthony Ryan. Anthony is a writer of fantasy, science fiction, and very occasional nonfiction. He was born in Scotland in 1970, but spent much of his adult life living and working in London. After a long career in the British civil service, he took up writing full-time. Uh, after the success of his first novel, Blood Song, which is book one of the Raven's Shadow Trilogy, which was purchased by Penguin U.S. and published in July of 2013. He also wrote the Draconis Memoria Trilogy, the Raven's Blade Duology, the sci-fi noir series Slab City Blues, and the Seven Sword series of fantasy novellas. Ryan has a degree in history, and his interests include art, science, and the unending quest for the perfect pint of real ale. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Ryan. Hello. Hello. How Thanks are we doing today? Me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm great. <laughs> so it's, uh, I guess it's about what, about five, six o'clock over there? Uh, six p.m. Six. Just. Okay. So, uh, so you've you've had a pretty full day today. Is has it gone pretty well? Yeah, I did a bit of writing, did a bit of drawing. So yeah, it's, it's always a good day when I do both. Yeah, yeah, I, I bet. Especially, especially with you know how how things have been going for the past several months. I'm sure getting any kind of writing done is a pretty good day. Um, actually, I've been more productive rather than less. Uh, I think writing has always been a bit of an escape for me anyway. So it just gives me something else to do and somewhere else to go rather than sitting there in front of the news getting stressed all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I know, I know uh, several authors I've spoken to since it began, you know, everybody's got kind of a different outlook on how their writing goes. I mean, and especially like in the book community with readers and bloggers, I know everybody's on completely different ends of the spectrum as far as, you know, maybe they're reading more. I know a lot of people are reading less because they just can't, I don't know. It's like they can't get into the reading mode. And I, I feel like that. I feel like some authors have that same thing. They can't get into a writing mode, but it's good to hear that you are. <laughs> yeah. I've been lucky. I gotcha. I gotcha. So, um, just kind of first off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, tell me about growing up, any hobbies you had growing up, uh, and kind of how you got into writing? Um, well, writing was always something I did uh, anyway, you know, no one ever had to make me do it, you know what I mean? I was scribbling away in uh, what the piece of paper I was given, if it wasn't drawing, I was writing something. Uh, and it was, I don't know, it, maybe eight or nine when I discovered that people actually got paid to be writers and it was a job you could you could get when you were all grown up. So I think from that moment on, with, you know, a couple of diversions and the, the usual wanting to be an astronaut or a paratrooper or whatever, but <laughs> I kind of always wanted to be a writer and from the moment I found out it was a thing people paid you to do. Uh, but you know, I, I was doing it anyway. I think that, like a lot of people my age, you know, we had we all had the seminal experience of Star Wars when that came along, which you know, it's, it's hard to underestimate just what a big cultural impact that was and what an impression it made on me with you know, the whole the idea of a saga, you know, just the idea of one long continuing story was it's very typical now, it's almost like everything is a saga, everything is, has an arc, but back in the mid to late 70s, it actually it was a relatively new concept for movies and even books, you know. Uh, Supposedly, yeah, the other sort of seminal influence was, I, I too really came along at the same time, which was uh, uh, Tolkien, obviously, uh, the, the Hobbit was a big thing for me, so was Lord of the Rings, but the thing that really sort of launched me into fantasy was uh, Lloyd Alexander's Pridane Chronicles, which were a kind of YA fantasy before people called it YA fantasy. And uh, when I discovered the first book in that series, uh, the Book of Three, um, that just really you know, propelled me into the world of fantasy and science fiction to a certain degree. Yeah, I was kind of lost in books for many years to come after that. Uh, so yeah, it really just developed on from that as uh, time went by. 
I gotcha. Yeah, I've actually been recommended. So, uh, you know, I told you a little bit before we started chatting. My, my wife and I just had a baby be uh, five weeks ago tomorrow. And uh, I had posted on Reddit asking for recommendations. So, like, you know, first series for her to read. You know, of course, you get the normal, like, Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And Friday Chronicles was was one of the ones that was uh, mentioned to me. So, it's, it's interesting that uh, you kind of had that same... <laughs> The same yeah. kind of start in the fantasy. Yeah, I think people probably recognize it as the Black Cauldron. It was made into an animated feature by Disney in the mid 80s, I think, mm-hmm. um, which I've never watched and probably never will because uh, I don't want it to spoil the memory of the books. By all accounts, it's not very good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, people probably be familiar with it from that. It might actually be a bit dated to a modern audience, you know, in terms of gender roles and so on. But for the most part, I think it's, you know, it's not as problematic as certain other things and, yeah, come from the same era. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I know um, there are a lot of people that that don't really read the classics anymore because it's not up to up to snuff to what people are putting out today <laughs> i guess you can say it's not yeah. as uh it's not as gruesome and and whatever as as you kind of see in some of the grimdark and so forth that uh that's written from authors you know the past 10 15 years um but you know it, it's kind of where it all started so you kind of you have to have some kind of interest in in the classics like the lord of the rings and so forth even though it may be a little more lighthearted. yes yeah, and it's the depiction of people and how they interact with each other and the you know, assumptions around gender and sexuality and so on, which, uh, you know, like when you read science fiction novels from the 1950s, uh, and they're set yeah, 200 years in the future, but they all have the attitudes of people who are from the 1950s because that's when it was written. You know, I think it's a kind of inescapable thing, you know, every book, is a product of the era that it comes from. You can't really get around it. Yeah. I'm sure people will be pointing at my books one day or you know, people are still reading me <laughs> <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm long gone and saying, oh, this, this is appallingly dated and whoa, look at the attitudes here. Uh, but I don't think you never escape that. You know, it's just a consequence of time moving on, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, tell me tell me a little bit about your career prior to writing. So uh, you, you were in the British Civil Service for, for a good while and then you took up writing full time? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I did a variety of jobs in the civil service. I was a customs officer for quite a long time and I, I did another job, which uh, uh, I think legally I'm still not allowed to talk about. I mean, <laughs> It's honestly not that exciting. It's just, it was one of those ones you needed a security clearance for, and this made me sign a piece of paper saying I wouldn't talk about it when I left. <laughs> so, so I never do, but which gives me this nice, mysterious cachet, which I don't really deserve, to be honest. There you go. But yeah, but yeah I had a, a standard civil service career. It wasn't, wasn't very spectacular to me, and I was always writing and hopefully getting to the point where I could leave and do this full time. I gotcha. So, so, so you, you kind of started, did you start writing like blood song and so forth while you were in the civil service or was that something that took later, yeah, later on? Did. Um, I mean, it took me six and a half years to finish blood song. Um, I began writing, I think in mid 2000, somewhere around there. Uh, and then finish until 2011, oh, no, the end of 2010. So yeah, it was, a, it was a long old hole with blood song, uh, but yeah, very glad I got there in the end. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 done pretty well. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, there's actually nothing to complain about. <laughs> so, uh, where do you uh, where do you typically find yourself writing? Do you have a do you have a home office you write in? Do you? I mean, obviously. You know, COVID's kind of taken a damper on if you were to go out and write, but did you did you have like a favorite place you like to write in before then? Um, these days, I have my own study in my house uh, where I write, uh, surrounded by bookshelves and things. Um, before, to be honest, I did because I had a day job and I had a daily commute to and from the office. 
I learned how to write anywhere, really. Um, I had to think be either the first or second generation iPad, um, which shows you how long ago it was, uh, where I would, uh, you know, just tap away at that on the train in, into work in the morning and on the train home at night. Uh, when I was writing Tower Lords, which is the sequel to Black Sun, uh, I still had a day job then. And I wrote Tower Lord in about six months, uh, and the experience of of that uh, daily sort of trying to get 2,000 words done a day whilst having a day job was what convinced me that it was, it was really time to, to quit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can't, if I have to, I can write anywhere. But like a lot of writers, I have my, you know, my own space, my daily ritual, of sitting down at a particular time of day. And, you know, uh, I always start, whenever I start, I have a cup of tea, uh, you know, don't drink as much tea as I used to, but uh, uh, I was on a five cup a day regimen at one point. Uh, I managed to dial it back because I wasn't sure it was good for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I always had my cup of tea in the morning and uh, you know, potter about for a couple of hours. Uh, and then I usually actually start writing properly uh, sometime after midday. Uh, you know, just keep going until I've, I've done what I need to do for the day. I got you. Just kind of, kind of until you're out of words for the day. <laughs> More or less. I mean, I, I don't write two thousand words a day anymore. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, I'm starting to get a bit of hand pain from all the typing, and I think it can burn out if you just keep going at it, hammering tongs for too long. So these days, it's about a thousand to twelve hundred words a day. But when I'm writing. Uh, you know, I do write every day and I have days off or anything unless I'm forced to. Uh, I will just keep going at it every day until it's done. Okay. I mean, it's, it's good to know that you don't kind of burn yourself out, though. You, you know, you've, you've mm. taken your word count down. And, I mean, you, you still enjoy it, obviously, because you're doing it on a daily basis. So, Or at least, at least I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> I do, yeah. I think um, there are times it can become stressful when you're running up it against a deadline or something. Uh, there have been times I've enjoyed it more than others. But yeah, I definitely uh, still get a lot of uh, joy and satisfaction out of it, especially when you finish something. It's, that's a great feeling when you finish. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell, me, tell me a little bit about your writing process and maybe how it's changed over the years. Uh, do you consider yourself, I mean, I hate, I hate using these terms, but I don't know any better ones, but an architect or a gardener? Uh, more of in the architect's realm. The thing is, I could never build a house because I'd have the plans, but I'd throw it away halfway halfway through building the house, and you know, <laughs> I'd have to tear it down and then build it all up again. <laughs> so I do have a plan. You know, I do plan my work. I have outlines, but uh, I always deviate and I always change things. I strangely always end up where I was trying to get to. I always have the ending I plan to have. Uh, but the, you know, actually getting there it always changes, it always deviates from the plan. Plans, I think, are kind of, for me anyway, they're a bit of a security blanket they're there to reassure me that I actually am going to finish the book. You know? I think it's a, one of the problems if you're a novice writer, as I used to be, uh, when you're a novice, you go through this period of not finishing. You start things, you get really excited about an idea you had start you know, writing away and then come to a grinding hole or it just sputters to a close. Um, well, probably the best lesson I ever learned uh, as a writer was learn to finish. Uh, there's no point starting if you're not going to finish. So these days I don't finish unless I have an ending before I start. All right, Tom. Um, so you talked a little bit about some of the influences that got you into writing. Would you say that you still have influences today, maybe from some of the more modern writers uh, that are out and about? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Mark Lawrence has been an influence, uh, you know, not necessarily from the realm of fantasy. You know, I do read fantasy on and off. Uh, but it's not my, it's not everything I read all the time. You know, I think it's important to read outside your genre. Mm -hmm. So probably is influenced by crime writers. You know, James Elroy has always been a big influence for me. Uh, various others. 
I think of people off the top of my head. <laughs> but uh, there's a great writer of, uh, I don't know if you'd even call it grimdark, but it's you know, very dark fantasy. Uh, Michael R. Fletcher, who wrote a book called Beyond Redemption. I don't know if you've read that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I just love the, sort of the central premise of it. So clever. And he just sort of takes it to its logical and hideously gruesome <laughs> Conclusion, you know, so, so if you had a world like that, this is what it would be like. And, you know, as the portrait of a world is a nightmare, I think it's, it's hard to beat. Uh, although my work isn't that dark, it's, uh, you know, certainly I think being influenced by, uh, by writers like him. Uh, lots of television movies, obviously, and over the years, comics have been a big influence, uh, probably as influenced by all of that as I am by books, to be honest. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's, it's it all goes into the, uh, the confused teapot of my head and it comes out a story. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I'll have to uh, I have to talk to, to to Fletcher and let him know that he got he got a shout out on the podcast. I, I've uh, I've been I've been you know social media friends with with Mike for gosh for what seems like forever. Um, yeah. I uh, I used to beta read all of his new stuff that came out like Ghost of Tomorrow and. Mm-hmm. Um, even when he started bringing out his, his new series, uh, City of Sacrifice. But, uh, yeah, I, I think he's, he's definitely mentioned how, how you're, you even influence him. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that. And it's funny you, you talked about Mark Lawrence because, uh, I went, I went on Goodreads this morning just to, to look a little bit at more at Blood Song. And, uh, his, his review of it back in 2014 was like the first thing that popped up. And he yeah. says, uh, I won't lie, some small but undeniable part of me came to this book hoping to find fault. It would take a better man than me to watch Anthony Ryan's barnstorming success without a twinge of envy. And sadly, I have to report that it's a very good book and deserves the five stars I've given it. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I was always grateful for that one. It's, uh, it's adorned many a book cover since his review. So, yeah. Thanks, Mark, if you're listening. Right. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, I want to chat about your new Raven's Blade duology, uh, which includes The Wolf's Call, which came out last year, and the upcoming Black Song, which hits on August 4th. And we can get that to uh, get to that here in a bit, but can you tell me a little bit about your first series up to this point, like the Raven's Shadow Trilogy and Draconis Memoria? You know, what was it like going from self-publishing Blood Song to getting a three-book deal uh, within a couple of years? Um, well, the deal for Blood Song actually happened quite quickly. You know, I got it was within five months of me oh, wow. on the Kindle store with you know the, uh, Susan Allison, who was in a senior editor at Ace Books at the time, got in touch with me, uh, and that was actually before it really started selling in decent numbers as a, as a self-published book. Um, and I should say that getting a publishing deal is not like winning the lottery you know it's not it's a it's a business arrangement right a contract and i strongly urge everyone to approach it like that don't run out and start buying houses or anything uh, <laughs> not that i was being offered house buying money but, you know, it's yeah it's a business arrangement and that's how you have to look at it um so yeah i mean the big difference is that you have contracted deadlines you know you have to deliver a book by a certain day and despite what you might have heard about people you know the famous Douglas Adams quote about deadlines he said I love deadlines Uh, I love the whooshing noise they make as they go past and (laughs) for most of you most of us aren't Douglas Adams you know it's various other people who can go for years without delivering a book you know most of us you have a contracted deadline and you are expected to meet it um so i guess it psychologically is a shift you have to make it's not a hobby anymore it's your job yeah uh, and you have to produce that's what they're paying you for uh, so yeah in terms of you know how it's gone since uh you know there's an endless debate between self-publishing and traditional publishing and what's best and what's right and uh, how beneficial they are for the author. All I can say is, from my point of view, I don't have any regrets about uh, taking the publishing deal. Uh, it worked out fine for me. You know, uh, I'm now a full-time author and uh, I don't have a mortgage, so you know, I don't really have anything to complain about. 
Um, but, you know, it's not right for everybody. There's other people who, uh, you know, have been more successful being self-public. But, you know, it's given me... What it does is give you the focus to focus on your work to a degree that you just can't do if you have no job. Um, and it gives you access to professional editors and you know, people who have been selling books and editing books for, for decades and know what they're talking about and can really guide you through the whole process and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it's it was definitely, I don't think I would have finished Bloods, the, the Raven Shadow trilogy as quickly as I did. I don't think it would have come out uh, as quickly as it did. I was expecting to spend, you know, 18 months to two years on Tabloid before it went out. But uh, actually, most of produce it within the, the year that I'd been given. And the same for Queen of Fire when that came out. Um, but I was, you know, I was, I think, at the end of that series, I was ready to move on, which is why, you know, I moved on to the Draconis Memorial, which is a totally, it's not, it's still fantasy, but it's a different world. You know, the Raven Shadow world is this, uh, is a fantasy, is a late medieval set fantasy series, complete with, you know, swords and magic and so forth. Uh, the Draconis Memorial is very different and takes place in a sort of post-industrial world. Uh, but they, you know, they don't fight with guns. They they fight with guns rather than swords. And, but there are dragons, and you know, you get magic powers by drinking dragon blood. Uh, and I, I wanted to do something very different for the second series. I didn't want to be writing the same book over and over again for the rest of my life. I did want to change it up, uh, and really, that's that's where it came from. Uh, yeah, and once again. Uh, don't really have any complaints about how it's gone. Uh, yeah. With, with, you know, it did, uh, once again, I had to buy fairly lengthy books uh, within a year. I mean, each of the, each book in those two series is over uh, 200,000 words. Uh, and with, you know, when, it, when I was moving on to uh, the Raven's Blade, uh, was, I was thinking, I really wanted to write something not completely shorter, but a bit shorter. <laughs> I could. I mean, coming up with the idea of the duology, uh, you know, with the characters, because I was returning to my main character, Balin, from anyone who's read the Red and Shadow series will be familiar with him. Um, and I was returning to his story, and I, thought I, had, I had an idea where I could tell the whole thing from his point of view and produce you know, get it done in two books that wouldn't be you know, in the 200,000 word range. It'd be more in the sort of 150,000 word range uh, if a bit longer. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I have to say I didn't come back to Veiling just because I was getting lots of emails from people asking me when he was coming back, even though I was getting lots of emails. Yeah, that's what they say. You know, I brought him back for that because I had a very strong idea of what to do with him next. But it took me three years to come up with it. If I go back to him again, it will be because I have a very strong idea what to do with him. I, I, I fully expect to, but you know, once again, it might take me a while to come up. I gotcha. Um, so uh, you, you hit on it a little bit, but can you tell the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with... Uh, your Raven Shadow trilogy, maybe a bit about what they can expect going in, especially going into Bloodsong? Yeah, I mean, it's the first book is told from one point of view, uh, changes in the second and third books, but the first book is one point of view uh, from uh, Balin's perspective. We, we meet him when he's about 11 years old, being left at the gates of a militant religious order. Uh, we don't know why, but we find out later. Um, and it's really the story of his life, uh, his involvement in various wars and lots of intrigue and magic, you know, both light and dark, over the course of uh, the sort of uh, few decades of his life. Uh, the second and third books really follow him, but they also follow a set of other characters. Because um, I, the reason the first book isn't written in uh, first person is because I always intended to open it out. I was going to open the narrative and include other points of view. Uh, and if I'd written the first book in 
first person. Pardon my uh, notifications as she's doing mine. Uh, if I'd written the first book in first person, it would have been too jarring uh, to uh, you know, switch to uh, third person for the, to the succeeding two books, uh, which are really the next two books are one long story which covers a sort of apocalyptic world spanning war that breaks out in, in Balin's world. And, uh, the uh, story of ultimate, uh, spoiler alert, victory, uh, even though it's a fairly bittersweet victory. Okay. All right, so we've talked a little bit about Raven's Shadow. Um, can you uh, tell me a little bit about Draconis Memoria and in regard to it, what made you venture into maybe the steampunk flavor of fantasy? Um, well, as I mentioned, I wanted to get away from swords and bows and arrows for a while. Uh, yeah, to take a break, I think. Um, I'd always been a fan of uh, the Western, uh, that kind of thing, and just the idea of writing shootouts rather than uh, sword fights uh, definitely appealed to me. There's also pretty much everything I write comes from my interest in history, and there's a lot of, with the Dracronis Memorial is probably the most historically inspired thing I've, I've written. Uh, there's a lot of the uh, Franco-Prussian War in there, there's a lot of the Industrial Revolution in there, but it's uh, it's a secondary world, it's not our world. Steampunk, and I'd, I'd like to stress for any steampunk fans, I'm certainly not averse to steampunk, it's a, it's a fine genre, uh, but I think steampunk purists uh, will insist that it has to be uh, set in an alternative Earth-based history rather than a secondary world. I know people you know, will disagree a lot of the place about this kind of genre identification thing. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think the purists of steampunk will insist that it's not alternative history and it's not steampunk, but whatever. If people want to call it steampunk, it's fine with me. But some people have called it dragon punk, some people have called it blood punk. So, you know, choose your genre title. <laughs> Uh, it was also the, what attracted me to was telling a kind of grand world-spanning conflict. I mean, I've done it to a certain extent in uh, the Raven Shadow books, but in the Draconis books, it really sort of uh, takes it to another level, you know. And, it, and from the get-go, it was a multi-point-of-view series. Uh, you know, obviously, I didn't mention Game of Thrones is one of my influences, but yeah. Anyone who's written fantasy for the last 20 years, it, it can't not be an influence. Right. Um, and, you know, with the, the multi-point of view thing, and the way it's so skillfully juggled in Game of Thrones, I kind of wanted to try and uh, not fully emulate it, but sort of uh, reflect it a bit in the, the way I approached uh, the story in Draconis Memoria. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, intrigue and spy stuff in that series as well. Uh, I've always been a fan of Spice Villas and so on. Uh, so there's, there's probably as much Ian Fleming as it was uh, George R. R. Martin and uh, you know, Chevy Priest in that series. But, yeah. I gotcha. So, so your your interest in in spy and crime novels is that what kind of made you jump into writing Slab City Blues? Uh, Slab City actually predates everything else. Um, I was I wrote Slab, the first Slab, Slab City Blues story before I wrote Blood Song. It was one of my stories I sent out to various magazines when I was busily collecting uh, rejection slips. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want anyone to think I've had an easy and untrammeled route to publication. It wasn't as easy as I put a book up on the Kindle store and then I got a publishing deal. I've got a lot. I used to have a whole suitcase full of rejection letters, uh, which I got rid of because it was, I don't know why I was keeping them, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, I've had as much rejection as every other writer who ever lived. Um, and the first Slab City story is one, I think, I wrote a whole slew of short stories, sci fi short stories, uh, throughout the, God, the late 90s. So mid nineties, late eighties, early nineties, where I was trying endlessly to get published in Interzone, which uh, was the premier British sci-fi magazine at the time, 
Um, I never got published in any zone, but uh, I think with uh, Best Lab City Story, it was the one that I sort of got closest to it. Uh, well, it was the one where I got more than a pro forma rejection letter. Uh, but yeah, it never got published. And when I was, I still had it in the drawer. And when I was uh, considering publishing both songs, a self published book, after it had received all the uh, rejection after I sent it out to Aiden, um, then, you know, I thought I'd, I'd experiment with publishing Slab City Blues, uh, self publishing it online, just to see, you know, just to familiarize myself with the process and see what kind of reaction I got. And it was, you know, it didn't set the world on fire or anything, but it, um, I got enough of a positive reaction that it was, it was enough to convince me to keep going, you know. Um, I should explain, you know, Slab City Blues is a sort of cyberpunk science fiction noir series. It's set, it's a kind of series of detective novels set on a, uh, an orbiting slum about uh, 250 years in the future. Um, you know, there's been, you know, Earth has sort of colonized uh, Earth's orbit and there's a lot of habitats in orbit, but they've uh, uh, become fed up with being governed by Earth and have declared independence and, and fought a war to do so. And the Slab City Blues stories take place in the kind of aftermath of that war. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, if you like William Gibson and that kind of story, it's, it does definitely have a, a cyberpunk influence to it. And a lot of, you know, uh, 1940s and 50s uh, film noir as well. I gotcha. So, so you, you can't sit here and tell me that you had a difficult time getting published, Anthony. Nobody ever has a difficult time getting published. <laughs> no, no, it's just so easy. <laughs> it's just something that happens. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry about it. Everybody gets published. Yeah, just, just, just put some words to a page and send to a publisher. You never get rejected. So, kind of, I have to ask, kind of going back to my original question about Blood Song. Did you did you ever intend to just stay self-published? Or I mean, was it just kind of like, I'm gonna throw this out there and if I get a publishing contract, great. I mean, did you ever did you ever think like, you know, I think I'm just gonna stay an indie indie writer and just continue this kind of stroll? Um, I kind of expected to, to be honest. Because I've had so much rejection for Blood Song. I sent it to every agent in the UK that dealt with fantasy and they'd all sent it back. Um Shame some of them. On them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I have visions of them all going out on the, the, the ledge of their high office, and uh, yeah. <laughs> like the Wall Street crash or something. Right, I'm right. sure. They, I'm sure. They didn't. No, I mean it's it's not an easy job being an agent. I know that from my own agent. It's you know you can't you can never predict really what's going to hit and what isn't. You know, so uh, the fact is it was a, a roundly rejected fantasy novel. So I didn't really expect a lot from it. I thought. The deal I made with myself was if it sells a thousand copies as a self-published book, I'll write the sequel. And I didn't really make any plans beyond that. I did think, you know, if I did write a sequel, it was going to be a self-published book like the first one. Um, yeah, it sold over 40,000 copies as a self-published book within six months. So, you know, it, it, to say it exceeded my expectations was a, was a bit of an understatement. Um, and obviously, I've got the, the publishing deal uh, in the process. Um, I don't want to say it was a no-brainer. I did actually consider uh, still going out alone and being an indie author kind of thing. Um, but I think what decided me was, um, it was two things, really. I'd, the first one is I'd get the support of a major publishing house. Uh, to push the book and to get it to get it to as wide an audience as possible. Um, the other thing was when you're self-published, you have to do absolutely everything yourself, or you have to pay people to do things for you. You know, you have to. If you can't do your own cover design, and I, I'd urge people not to do your own cover design <laughs> unless, you, unless you are a graphic designer. Uh, so you have to pay someone to do that. You have to pay someone to edit it, even though it's self-published. Still needs to be edited. It still needs to be proofread. And there's all this other stuff uh, that you have to do. And these days, you know, when I did it, it was probably the last era where you could put something up as a, as a self-publisher and it would gain organic sales. You know, if it was good, people would notice and it would sell. 
these days, from what I can gather, it's not you can't do that anymore. Yeah. These days, you have to advertise if you want to sell. Yep. So you've got that on top of everything else. You have to pay for those ads. Uh, so if you're, you know, traditionally published, you have to do all that stuff. That doesn't mean you have to do publicity. It doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, network and all the rest of it. But it, it does take some of the load, well, a large amount of the load, sort of difficult parts of publishing, apart from writing the book. It takes that off your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, a, a panel uh, for, for my convention I did back in May uh, that was the traditional versus self-hub. So it had, you know, Josiah Bancroft and Fletcher and Dirk Ashton and Jonathan French and Jonathan Wood all come on because all of them have kind of gone both routes or at least one or the other. Uh, and to kind of hear how they, how they look at it from different points of view. Uh but yeah, a majority of it came down to it's really hard to get people to read your book when you're the yeah. only person pushing it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why one of the, story, the questions I get asked from time to time by aspiring writers is, uh, how do I copyright my idea? How do I stop someone stealing my brilliant idea? <laughs> and it's like, A, have you, written, have you written it yet? And the answer is always no. Um, second B, uh, you don't have to worry about people stealing it. You have to worry about getting anyone to read it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, that's always the hardest part. You know, marketing, publicity, and all that, and getting it in, in front of people who actually read it is always the hardest part. Yeah. Nowadays, it's uh, you know, you, you know, you've definitely made it when your book reaches the pirate site. <laughs> yeah. You know, Blood Song when I first put it up was a ninety-nine cent ebook. And it got pirated when it was a 99-70. It's amazing how people won't pay for stuff that's so cheap. Yeah. <laughs> They'll go out and buy a Kindle, but they won't pay 99 cents for a, yeah. for a you know, five or 600-page book. <laughs> a, a really good one at, at that. So. Mm. Um, all right. So, so we've arrived at the Raven's Blade duology. Um, obviously, like I said, uh, Wolf's Call came out last year. Uh, we've got Black Song coming out on August 4th. So, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit, but what made you want to journey back into the world uh, that you started in the Ravens uh, trilogy? Um, it, was, it was just time for Malin to come back, really. Um, I've had a break from him. Uh, so, you know, I think he probably appreciated a holiday after everything <laughs> Um And, yeah, it, was, it takes time for me to put a story together in my head. I come up with ideas constantly. Uh, my, my general sort of th feeling on this is that ideas are easy and stories are hard. Uh, so it takes a few years for the story to come together in my head, even though I might have a really good idea for it. Uh, until you've got the, you know, the course of the story, the sort of whole thing mapped out in your head, then uh, it's not time to start writing until that's there. Yeah. I'm not saying I have the whole book ready to go, I obviously don't, but I know where I'm going with it. And it's, that's the thing that takes time to come up with. And it took, yeah, it took about three years to come up with where I was going with Valen next. You know, uh, It wasn't clear to me at the end of uh, Queen of Fire where we left it, uh, what I was going to do with him next. I knew, uh, you know, anyone, this will be, it makes sense if you read the book. I knew I wanted to bring Sharon back, who's a character, a very important character, but she disappears at the end of book one. And you know, I get three emails about uh, Blood Song even today, which is one, what happened to Sharon? Two, spoiler alert, why did you kill the dog? And, and three, when's Railing coming back? Uh, those are the three questions I get more than any other. Um, so with this, you know, I wanted to answer the question, what happened to Sharon, and then we had to find out. Uh, and if you're a fan of the series, it's probably quite a big question for you. Um, but yeah, I wasn't going to bring him back until he was ready. Um, you know, and, I, and I, I never wanted to just keep writing him until I was sick of him, you know, I still quite kind of like him. I didn't want to get to the point that I know Arthur Conan Doyle was heartily sick of Sherlock Holmes by the end. I mean, he dropped him off a cliff at the back of Black Falls because he was so sick of Sherlock Holmes. And I never wanted to get to that point with Bailey. So 
Well, if I was going to bring him back, he wanted it to be uh, something I actually was keen to write, you know, rather than just doing it because people, you know, were sending me emails about it all the time. So, yeah, um, the story, you know, in this one, is the setting's different. And I send Valen on a journey to the far west, which is alluded to in the first trilogy a lot, but we don't see it. And it's kind of the place that's analogous to Ming Dynasty China. Um, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't just take Ming Dynasty China and then just you know, shoehorn it into a fantasy story. I borrowed <laughs> or, or stole a lot from, from history and you know put together this uh, sort of uh, Far Eastern China, yeah, medieval Chinese society. Um, you know, which in some ways is much more advanced and, you know, has, has a much more, has a deeper level of civilization and good governance than the world that Malin comes from, which is still a sort of late medieval world, uh, which, which is reflective of reality because, you know, the Chinese, long before Western culture came up with the, the printing press, the Chinese already had printing, you know, they already had the system of government, which uh, put everything else to, to shame, you know. And they had a, such a well-developed network of roads and uh, internal communications that you could get. And the Chinese, the Ming dynasty was at its height, you could get a message from one end of the empire to the other in about four days. And this was at a time in medieval Europe, you could get a message from London to Paris in two months, maybe. Uh, that's if the guy holding the message wasn't waylaid and killed in, in the, <laughs> or died of plague. Uh, so, yeah, in some ways it, they, they were, and as, yeah, in depicting the Raven's Blade duology there, they're more advanced in some ways, but also their level, the level of civilization they've reached makes them a bit vulnerable to, to invasion, which, yeah, surprise, surprise, is what happens whilst. Uh, Whilst Malin's there, a whole, uh, a whole war breaks out around it. So it, it wouldn't be a Malin story if he didn't have a war to fight. Okay, yeah, see. <laughs> so do you, uh, do you anticipate any more books in this world, or do you feel like you're done for now again? Are you going to take another little break and just see if anything kind of It'll steers? It'll be a while. Yeah, yeah I, I do want to bring Malin back. Um, I mean, one of the points of inspiration for him is David Gemmell's uh, Drust books. I don't know if you ever read David Gemmell, but uh, he had this character, Drust the Legend, um, and he kind of told his story in reverse order. Well, we meet Drust uh, when we first meet him in, in Legend, a book called Legend, um, which is at the very end of Drust's career, but it's the first time as a reader you, you meet him as, the, as, as it goes on. Uh, David Gemmell sort of tells his story in sort of reverse order, if you like. Uh, and I kind of wanted to do that with Valen, but not tell it in reverse order. So it might get to a point where he's, you know, 60 years old and still, you know, bestriding the battlefield. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with him. But yeah, I do want to bring him back uh, in some form. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler to say I didn't kill him off. So yeah, we'll... Uh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll be meeting him again and the other characters from the first trilogy as well. I do. There's a lot of things I want to cover with them, so they'll all turn up at some point in the future. But, uh, you know, I've got other things to write in the meantime, so, yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been lauded on multiple occasions for your fully realized characters and immensely detailed world building. Do you believe those are the things that make your book shine, or is there something else maybe another piece that you think does the books more justice? Um, I'd almost try to keep the story moving. Uh, I'm always trying to put the characters into motion, you know. Uh, we'll call it walking and talking. If they're walking and talking, then the reader's not going to be bored. Um, but there has to be both. If they're just sitting around for chapter after chapter, never going anywhere, you know, then that gets boring. So I'm always trying to keep the story moving forward and trying to, try to propel it forward in some way or another. Uh, and I do like to trim the fat. I don't have, you know, endless pages of description of people 
traipsing through forests or walking up and down tunnels or things. Uh, if, it's, if it's not necessary for the story, then I'll cut it. You know, I won't write it in the first part. And I do think, uh, you know, something I do say with novice writers sometimes these days is what I call D&D-itis, where people have come to fantasy via Dungeons and & Dragons. And sometimes they make the mistake of thinking a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, you know, their favourite D&D campaign is going to make a great novel. Uh, and it won't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You heard, it, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, it just won't because it's it's an interactive medium. It's a different medium. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah, it's a different form of storytelling. It's still storytelling, but it's not storytelling in a novel form. Uh, it's an interactive form of storytelling. So if you try and translate that into book form, it, unless it's a choose your own adventure, uh, it's not generally going to work. It's just going to be boring. You know, it's a bit of a turn off for me when I have people. Yeah, traversing networks of tunnels and stuff and going from one dungeon to the other it can get very tedious. Yeah. So are there any uh, specific themes you try to pull into all of your novels or does it really depend on how the work speaks to you? It does. It varies from series to series, really. Uh, I mean, Shadow series, there's, there's a lot of that religious conflict in it. Um, uh, probably the underlying theme of it is religious conflict, but uh, in Draconis Memorial is much more of a political thing. Uh, it's much more about you know, post-industrial society in a period of change, in a, in a period of revolution, really. Uh, what happens in revolutions and so forth, that was kind of what I wanted to explore with that. Uh, with the Raven's Blade, it's more—I think it's more personal. It's not—it's not dealing with those sort of bigger themes. It's much more of a personal story. You know, it's about reconnecting with people after, you know, after they've suffered a lot and after a prolonged absence, and how they're not the same people you used to know. And you're not the same person they used to know. Uh, so I guess that's the underlying theme of, uh, of the Raven's Blade. Okay. Um... So what are you working on now? Uh, well, I just finished the first in a new trilogy, uh, and I'm not allowed to tell you anything about it, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am under contract for it. It will be published. Uh, the first book should be out in uh, you know, summer of next year, but I can't, say, I can't, even, can't even tell you the title because we haven't decided on the title yet. Uh, but I have delivered the first book, and... Uh, what I will say is that uh, swords feature prominently. Okay. I mean, yeah. you can't go wrong, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so I know uh, I know you've also got your uh, novella series, uh, Seven Swords, and you've got the Kraken Sooth coming out in September uh, from Subterranean, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I, I loved the first one, Pilgrimage of, Pilgrimage of Swords. Oh, so good. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, that was another one that hung around my head for a number of years, waiting to be written. Um, and they, you know, they came about because uh, Subterranean just got in contact and asked if I asked if I wanted to write a novella for them. And I had a Raven Shadow novella that you know uh, was ready to go, but I did want to write something different. I did want to explore a new world that, you know, in a novel form, a novella form. Uh, so uh, I said, well, you know, give me give me 12 months and I'll come back if I've got anything. So, <laughs> luckily, I was able to, to produce Pilgrim with your swords relatively quickly. Uh, I think because it had been hanging around my head for so long, writing it wasn't that difficult. But in the course of writing, as, as almost always happens with me, uh, I started generating more and more ideas. And once I delivered it, I suggested to Subterranean that, you know, this could be a series if you're interested in uh, publishing the other volumes, and luckily they were. So yeah, that's uh, that's where the Kraken's Tooth came from. Uh, hopefully, it'll be where the next uh, five books in the series come from. I'm about to start the next one actually. So fantastic! Yeah, we're cracking on with that. Thanks. Yeah, I know uh, Kraken's Tooth. I, I I think I just got it on my on my desk a couple of days ago. So I'm I'm itching to read it because I read Pilgrimage pretty early last year along with one of my co-bloggers. And uh, we both we both absolutely loved it, so I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to book two. And and, and just kind of within in that same question, 
do you, do you enjoy writing short fiction more than you know a, a full length novel, or is it really you like both? You like just kind of taking a break from writing long hand to shorthand. Um, I'm not naturally suited to short fiction. Uh, novellas are the shortest things I can comfortably write. Uh, written very few short stories, um, and it's I just find it really difficult. You know. Uh, Back when I was sending stories to magazines and not getting published, one of the hardest things for me was keeping within the uh, because they always said oh, it can't be more than seven thousand words. You know, and I'd, oh, I've never written anything that I published. I don't think I've written anything that's less than seven thousand words. Uh, I just find it very hard to do. It's a particular kind of skill set which I don't seem to have. Novellas, when it comes to you know shorter works, novellas seem to be my comfort zone. If it's 20,000 words to 30,000 words, then you know, I, can, I can comfortably write that. And if it's shorter, then it's a, it's a harder thing for me to do. I'm, I'm much more comfortable in that long form fiction. Yeah, I, I guess because you can, you can just trim away and <laughs> when, you, when yeah. you write something longer because you don't really have a, a word count you have to stick to. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, last question I got for you. Anything recently that you've read that you'd recommend or any authors that you think should get a little more uh publicity than they do um uh, my friend uh, kv johansson's written a series uh, called the uh stage keeps changing it <laughs> the series is the the caravan road uh which is sort of a series of fantasy novels set uh yeah i mean a sort of fantasy version of the silk road uh, really, very well written books and definitely deserve a, a bigger audience. Uh, I just finished an arc actually of a book called The, the Black Tongue Thief uh, by a guy called Chris Newman, who I think was a horror author, but this is his first fantasy novel. Um, and it's excellent, really. Uh, yeah, watch out for that one. I think it's out in summer next year, but I can't really recommend that one. Oh, and uh, Django Wexler, I think, is about to release Ashes of the Sun, uh, which is a really good uh, uh, secondary world fantasy, or maybe science fantasy. But it's, uh, yeah, if you like sort of action-oriented uh, fantasy, yeah, I think you definitely like that one. Okay. Yeah, I've heard uh, a lot about Black Tongue Thief. Uh, I think I started hearing about it maybe towards the end of last year. And, of course, they're like, nope, 2021 released. I'm like, we really have to wait that long? Um, and, uh, awesome. And I've actually, uh, there, uh, orbit is doing a big digital launch for ashes of the sun. I think it's the last week of this month and uh, I'll be interviewing Django on here. So I'll be interested to hear some more about ashes of the sun. Uh, I've heard some good things already and it's good to hear that you recommend it as well. So yeah, fantastic. Well, um, Everybody that's listening in, uh, you can follow Anthony on Twitter at writer underscore Anthony. Uh, you can find him on Facebook at Anthony Ryan author. And then his, uh, I mean his blog slash website, uh, Anthony Ryan.net. Uh, and again, the black song comes out on August 4th and Kraken's tooth, which is the, the second, uh, novella in that series comes out, uh, in September. I think it's September 30th for that one. Uh, but definitely check out A Pilgrimage of Swords if you haven't already. Uh, it's a pretty quick read. It's a fantastic read, so highly recommend it. Uh, but, Anthony, just thank you so much for coming on today and, uh, and spending some time chatting with me about your books, about your about your life, about your writing career, uh, and we're definitely looking forward to more from you. Thanks. Uh, I had fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Great. Absolutely. Uh, you enjoy uh, the rest of your weekend, and, and we'll chat again soon. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to check out The Wolf's Call, which is the first novel in the Raven's Blade duology, stay tuned for a bonus clip from the audiobook presented to you by Penguin Audio and read by the amazing Stephen Brand. The arrow slammed into the trunk of a pine an inch from his head. Valen Alsorna stared at the fletching as it vibrated before his eyes, feeling a sting on his nose and a trickle of blood left by the shaft's barbed head. He hadn't heard the archer who loosed the arrow, nor had he heard the betraying creak of string and stave. To an onlooker, his reaction would have seemed swift and immediate. Rolling to the right, coming to his knees, bow drawn and arrow loosed in a single smooth movement. But he knew it to be slow, even as he saw the archer, running now with his horn raised to his lips, 
take the shaft directly in the back, and fall dead. Slow. There was a soft rustle at his side, as Les appeared out of the surrounding carpet of ferns, knocked bow in hand. The camp, uncle, she said, slightly breathless with eagerness as she started to rise. We need to move quickly. Her words died as Valin reached out to clamp a hand over her mouth, exerting enough force to keep her crouching. He held her there until the next arrow came, arcing down from the forest canopy to sink into the earth half a dozen feet away. A searching arrow, Master Hutrill would have called it. Always useful when flushing prey. But not today. Velin met Alessa's dark, glaring eyes and raised his own to the treetops before moving his hand. He won't blow his horn just yet, he told her, hands moving in the sign language so laboriously taught to her over the preceding months. That would reveal his position. I'll run to the right. He turned, tensing in anticipation of a sprint, then paused to add, Don't miss. He surged to his feet, boots pounding on the forest floor as he ran, describing a winding course through the trees. This time, he heard the bowstrings thrum and threw himself behind the broad trunk of an ancient yew, glimpsing an explosion of splintered bark in the corner of his eye. A second later came the sound of another bowstring, the note deeper, possessed of an almost musical precision that bespoke the power of the weapon and the skill of its wielder. A brief pause, then the thud of a body falling from a tall height to the forest floor. Valin remained crouched behind the yew, eyes closed as his ears drank in the song of the forest. It wasn't long before the chitter of birds, stilled by the unwelcome intrusion, began to return, and the wind carried no more trace of sweating, fearful men. He emerged from his refuge to find Aless busily searching the body of the outlaw her arrow had plucked from the treetops. Her movements were swift and practiced, hands betraying no sign of a tremble despite having just wrested the life from a man. He knew she had killed before in Cumbrail, during a brief and quickly crushed resurgence of the ever-troublesome Sons of the True Blade. It doesn't vex her at all, Reva had written in a letter she sent north along with her adopted daughter, which vexes me greatly. He saw scant resemblance to Reva in this girl, hardly surprising given the fact that they shared no blood. Her hair was black and her eyes dark, and she was perhaps an inch shorter, if a little thicker of limb. However, the apparent immunity to the effects of killing was a recognizably familial trait that she had clearly picked up somewhere along the road, one she shared with the man she called uncle. Blue stone, she said, tossing aside the dead man's purse and holding up a handful of gleaming azure pebbles, wrapped in cotton so they wouldn't clink. She angled her head as she surveyed the outlaw's corpse. Knew his business, at least. She glanced up at Valin before adding with a grin, Not well enough, though. Valin crouched to retrieve the man's bow, a flat-staved hunting weapon typical to all fiefs of the realm except Cumbrail. Had the fellow possessed a longbow and the skill to use it, Valin knew he would likely be dead now. Check his scalp he told Aless, who duly whipped away the man's woolen cap, revealing a shaven head. Valin used his boot to turn the corpse's head until he found it, a crude tattoo forming a dark crimson stain amidst the grey stubble. The bloody sparrows, he said, moving away. The outlaw he had killed lay some twenty paces off, face down, with Valin's arrow protruding from his back at a near vertical angle. Valin worked the shaft loose, grunting with the effort of extracting the barbed head from the bony trap of the man's spine before turning him over. 